0: Welcome to the latest episode of Your Wealth with Gemma Dale, a podcast series designed to help you create, grow and protect your wealth.
1: Hi, and welcome to this episode of Your Wealth. I'm Gemma Dale, NABTRADE's Director of SMSF and Investor Behaviour. Well, for a lot of us, it feels like the world's very much returned to normal post-COVID, and there's obviously a few major exceptions. But one of the really big exceptions has been the return of the office as the key workplace for anyone who works at a desk. And I'm one of those people. We heard last episode that office vacancies in global cities like San Francisco are as high as 30%, absolutely huge. And there's this massive reluctance for clearly workers right across the developed world and potentially the developing world as well. For a lot of us, those of us who, for whom working from home was a necessity, it's kind of become a way of life. And that has real implications for investors because many of us, whether we've done it directly or via our super funds, have meaningful holdings in office property and commercial property trusts whose fortunes are heavily tied to CBD property. What does it mean for those guys? Today, I'm joined by Alex Praneas, who's an equity analyst at Morningstar to talk about the death of the office. And- what it means. Does it present opportunities for investors or is it just a massive threat? Alex, thanks so much for joining me.
0: Good to be talking with you, Gemma. There's uh, yeah, plenty to talk about on this topic, I think.
1: Yeah, I think we're all interested in it at a personal level. We're interested in it at at a professional level. For those of us who are listening who don't work in an office and there are plenty who don't work in the CBD and who don't read Financial review (laughs) or follow the business press. Maybe this doesn't feel like a massive issue. But if we cover where we find ourselves now, COVID lockdowns, general safety concerns, huge numbers of workers in offices being required, not choosing, required to work from home all around the world and in Australia. Again, I was one of them, you know, NAB among many, many other employers was very much of the view that being at home was a much safer place to be. It was costing an absolute fortune to do pandemic cleans every time someone was sick. It was just much better to have workers at home. But things have changed a lot. So. What proportion do you think of that office workforce are actually returning to the office on a regular basis now? It's been, what, three years?
0: Yeah, it has been. Uh, Look, first, I'll just sort of say that any, I I might talk about some specific stocks during this podcast or um, investment, you know, subsectors in the, the REIT space and all my comments are, I guess, general in nature and they don't take into account anyone's sort of specific financial circumstances. But to try to answer your question about, uh, you know, how many people are coming back into the office, I guess we try to um, here at Morningstar look at the data uh, to some degree to um, sort of inform what's what, what's happening. And so there's a there's a few sort of data sources that we've tracked over the last few years, and so it's things like um, Google mobility data. And then, particularly useful um, to answer this question is things like the the data from the Property Council, uh, where they ask you know building owners to actually report periodically, um, you know just how many people are in the office on on a given day, you know sort of every day for a week. So the the latest that we've got for that data from the Property Council was back in February, and that was sort of around about. 60% Sixty percent um, of pre-COVID activity in in Sydney, Brisbane was a bit higher than that. Around about, you know, I'm just sort of giving the numbers here from memory. Around about seventy percent, seventy-five percent. And Melbourne was quite a bit lower, below fifty percent. But we, you know, we do sort of think that the the sort of recovery from, you know. It was much lower than that um, during lockdown, of course, and things have gradually recovered since then. And um, We actually think that that gradual recovery is, is still happening. We, we don't think that it's plateaued yet. Um, so we've been looking at some other data sources, for example, the, um, the data from Transport for New South Wales um, on the, the CBD train station exits. So if we look at say in, in Sydney um, train stations like Circular Quay, Town Hall, Wynyard, these are the the stations that are close to the the sort of major office assets owned by the the major office REITs. That's back to around about sort of a 70 75% um, of pre-covid levels. So it's up it's up from that um 60% that than what the data from the property council was indicating back in February, um, and we, we, you know, probably think the recovery slows down a bit from here. Like a lot of that recovery has has happened now that lockdowns are over, but we, we think there's still a little bit of a way to go as far as, um, you know, more people coming back into the office. And part of that is, uh, you know, maybe, you know, people who were previously uh, not coming in at all maybe just coming in you know one two, three days a week, probably not so much expecting that the people who are already coming in three to four days to go to five necessarily. but the third part I guess is is population growth and we're, we're seeing strong population growth in Australia. so that that will also drive CBD activity.
1: Yeah, that's an interesting one though population growth story. And one of the comments that's been made by a lot of the big employers is that it's fine to work from home if you've been with an employer for a long time and you know your job and you don't necessarily need to collaborate regularly or you're not seeing clients in the office and so on. But for new starters, it's particularly important to kind of be around people and learn the ways of working and get to know people and all that kind of stuff. So there's a lot to be said for working in the office, particularly when you're new. They talk often about young employees, but I would imagine migrants and people who have just joined the workforce in Australia, whether they've been working for 20 years overseas is irrelevant. But, you know, coming here and learning about just who your colleagues are and what they're doing and how it all works might be be really attractive. There is this, as you say, getting from zero to two to three days a week has been a big thing and one large employer that I was speaking to made the point last year that 40% of their employees had not swiped their passes since pre-COVID which is just an astonishing statistic, 40%. That's incredible, yeah. Just amazing. So for anyone who doesn't work in an office where you swipe your pass, uh, and it's probably been a decade since I've worked in an employer where we didn't have to do that, uh, there's a lot of buildings where you have to swipe a pass just to get into the building or get into the part that you work in. So they would have really good data. Do they not share that? Is that sort of proprietary, that kind of information?
0: Look, sometimes it's shared and, and sometimes it's not. But um, generally speaking, no, it's it's not sort of publicly shared. The property council, as I mentioned, does do those those surveys. <laughs> Funnily enough, you know, it hasn't come out. They they haven't released it uh, since February. And as a as an analyst, you know, my natural disposition is to be uh, suspicious or sceptical. So when I when I see a essentially a a sort of a lobbyist organization. When when I see that the data hasn't come out in a few months, my my natural inclination is to think, well, oh, maybe that's because you know the data is is bad, i.e. that it's it's not supporting the idea that um, that you know office utilization is is increasing. But you know, as I mentioned, the you know that that train station data does seem supportive that the CBDs are getting busier. And interestingly there was also some reporting out this week I think from CBRE uh, showing that retail rents in uh, in CBDs have started to rise and uh, you know I tend to think that that wouldn't be the case unless we were seeing um, you know more foot traffic in in the CBDs so that that was retail was probably one of the the hardest hit um, areas in the whole, uh, sorry. Retail in this, yeah, retail in the CBD, even more so than than office, because the you know the big office, the corporate tenants, whether or not they're using the office, they still have to pay the rent regardless of whether they're using the office. Whereas the the retail tenants, you know, they 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 just didn't have the uh, the foot traffic and the people buying lunches and so on. And so retail rents in the CBD really that um, it, it was really a tough space to be. Uh, so it's interesting now that um, that retail rents have have started to increase finally, whereas uh, you know for probably uh, a good 12 months or so now, we've actually seen office rents slightly rising, not not necessarily going up a lot, but um, in the core CBD areas in the good buildings, we have actually seen office rents rising slightly in the uh, in the last 12 months.
1: Yeah that's really interesting a um, a friend of ours who works uh in the sort of commercial leasing space in office in the CBD uh during covid we were really worried about him right because we thought he was going to lose his job or the, at the bare minimum he would be making you know minimum salary and we're like mate how are you going you all right this is fairly early on he said i have never been so busy uh Releasing yeah. space. Yep. space. <laughs> so subletting, just huge quantities of subletting. It was like, I've never been so busy in my life because all of these massive office spaces that large corporate tenants had taken out, they were like, don't need it. Can you sublet it? I don't care what I get for it as long as I'm getting something rather than having it empty. Uh, but obviously that's changed quite a bit. Do you think a lot of the driver to get workers back in the office is because there's two completely different stories on this. One of them is it's good for workers, it's good for productivity, it's good for careers, it's good for business, for people to be working together in a single space or multiple spaces depending on the the size of the business. And that's what we need. We need people working together and collaborating. Or do you think it's a commercial decision going, I've got this enormous rent bill and I want to be sure that I'm not wasting that money paying for an enormous empty office with nobody in it?
0: Yeah, that's an interesting one. I I mean, I guess it's a commercial decision but not necessarily about the rent. Um, I think the corporate tenants are going to have to pay that rent regardless of whether they're using the space. Um, and if they're not using it at all, um, they can, you know, sublease it to the likes of, uh, you know, with the, the help of your your friend that works in, in office leasing and so they can sort of get some of that outlay Back, you know, unlike in uh, the residential tenants market, if you're in in the office market, if you're leasing space, you generally have the right to sublet that if if you're not using it. But when I say it's a commercial decision, it probably, I think it does sort of hark back to some of those points you mentioned around you know collaboration, training of of younger workers, and perhaps also there is a bit you know in some cases an element of it's just it's easier to manage if people are in the office there's less you know fewer legal issues to worry about um fewer you know concerns around you know culture or um you know behavioral issues that may arise um yeah and you know that may also ego may all be a part of it around you know not necessarily commercial um issue with the rent but just um Having the the office space there being unused, or um, yeah, so the, I think there's a whole range of um, commercial and kind of human issues that that go into it, and probably it's going to be something that is kind of negotiated at the at each employer or each union, and and for each employee, you know, is probably going to end up with um, somewhat somewhat different arrangements, and you know what that looks like in the long run. We may not know for a while, but I guess the other big part of it, and again, why your your friend in leasing ha- is potentially so busy, is that we've actually not had not just hybrid working, but we've had uh, a heck of a lot of new office supply in the last couple of years. Um, we've essentially had a sh- you know shortage of office space before the pandemic, and that was kind of. I guess a delayed kind of supply response from that it takes a you know a couple of years to build an office even longer to um you know get it all approved so we we had this supplier coming through 2021 2022 and into 2023 of projects that were actually approved before the pandemic and so, and so we've had this um this significant amount of new supply coming on so that's that's sort of added to the um the supply demand imbalance.
1: Yeah, that's really interesting. And it doesn't seem to be something that is talked about a great deal. And this is where I wanted to ask you, do you think we will see companies giving up on this effort to get people back five days a week? As you say, getting from zero to two to three, that's one thing. Getting from three to five might be a bridge too far for a lot of companies, unless they mandate it. Uh, There are a lot of companies that have enterprise agreements and so on that require them to give employees flexibility. There's a lot of kind of uh, legislative and just employee frameworks around that kind of stuff that are hard to unwind and you don't want to be seen as not flexible. And there's also this issue, which I think is not ignored, but it's becoming louder and louder is the cost of living issues are very real, fuel and transport costs, the Costs of buying your lunch. I mean, theoretically, you don't have to buy your lunch. <laughs> it's still a cost. Yeah. You know, all yeah. of these it's things hard. are affecting it's hard workers. Not to
0: when you're busy. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. All of these things are affecting workers. Employers do not want to be paying inflation plus wage rises at this point in time. You know, there's a meaningful chance they were not paying inflation wage rises in the past. And when inflation's fair enough, around 6% now, that still hurts employers a lot. If you can say to an employee, look, we'll give you 3%, but we'll let you work from home for two days a week. And the employee goes, that's fine. That's roughly the same amount of money to me after tax. I'm saving that much. That might be one reason why we're sort of not seeing quite so many people coming back in. Do you think in this scenario, companies, instead of going, look, we're just going to be flexible with our space and there'll be people in some days and not others. They go, do you know what, we're just going to try to reduce our footprint as much as humanly possible. And then obviously it's complex. You've got to work out how you match your resourcing to your space. That's quite tricky. But is that what people are trying to do or they're like, look, we'll we'll have space for 200 people knowing full well that we'll only have 130 in most days?
0: look it's a difficult one. um some definitely have gone that route of of trying to cut space to be honest though, from a from the point of view of an investor uh, so you know if you if you talk about it from the point of view of employees and employers, you know there's clearly there's going to be negotiations that happen or maybe even you know more firm than you know the arguments let's let's say um. As, as this sort of plays out and where exactly it, it lands, I don't think anyone knows. I think, And I think that probably explains why um, some leases have things like expansion and contraction rights, which is where, you know, employer might take up a certain amount of office space, but they have a right built within the lease to actually increase the amount of space or decrease it um, simply because they – they don't necessarily know how much space they're going to need in you know 3 years 5 years down the track as this all plays out so that's sort of from the point of view of that negotiation between um, employers and employees but from the point of view of an investor in in the REITs i don't know that it matters too much and there's a there's a reason why a few reasons why i say that one Is that I think in the long run, you know, I view these office buildings as as commodities. Supply will kind of match demand. Now you can get these kind of long periods where you know you have too much supply or not enough supply because obviously it's pretty slow to get an office building approved, get it constructed, uh, and so on. If you've got not enough supply, Um, and similarly if you've got too much supply, as you know maybe we do at the moment, then it takes time for perhaps some office buildings to be repurposed into residential or, or hotel or demolished or, you know, new um, population growth to kind of uh, catch up and, and sort of fill in some of that um, that vacant uh, space. But the, the big office REITs, they've generally got uh, leases locked in for almost all their space for the next kind of four to six years, depending on the name. Um, so a lot of this sort of mismatch between supply and demand will be, we think will be largely resolved by over that period. Um, and then the second, uh, the, the other point is that um, there may be too much office, but it's a question of, you know, what type of office is there too much of? Crudely speaking, you can sort of think of offices as uh, prime grade, and and everything else everything kind of worse than than prime grade and each of them is about half the market so half the office market is prime and half is like b grade and and lower and a lot of employers uh kind of it seems to be that they they're thinking well if we're going to have an office it's going to be a quality office that that is attractive for people to come into but there aren't that many vacancies in the, the the most modern prime grade assets with the good good energy ratings um, in the best locations in the CBDs and that's typically what the the REITs the big REITs own. Um, so there could be some you know pretty severe pain out there in some of those B grade offices not not even necessarily all of those, but there may be some assets that end up with with very high vacancy. Um, and perhaps have to get, whether it be demolished or repurposed into something else, or, you know, some some buildings may just um, have high levels of vacancy for a long period of time. So there's, there's quite a few moving parts in in here for investors to think about.
1: Yeah, that's so interesting because this talk about the quality of your office assets is you can hear it heating up, right? It's not necessarily something that is discussed. Uh, (laughs) Some friends of mine are very, very much into their office space. they like, they like to work in a nice office. They want a view. Uh, (laughs) They want all the beautiful things. (laughs) Don't we all? Yeah, exactly. Um, But they want all the beautiful things and they're very much of the view that if they're the employer that they may choose to work for doesn't have those things and it's a suboptimal employer. They don't want to work for that employer if they have to work in a horrible place, which I find really fascinating. But there's a lot of not just prestige but employee engagement and so on that goes along with the space that you're providing to your employees and to your customers. You know, if your customers and your and your clients are coming into that space then there's a lot to be said for having, having the right kind of building you talked about energy ratings as well because obviously the efficiency component matters a lot. If you're the one paying the electricity bill, you want to be, you want to be in a a high grade building. Yep. All of this really comes down to valuations. I mean, as you've pointed out clearly as investors, that's what we care about as employees. We may have views about the buildings we work in, but that will be one building as an investor. You care a lot about the sector broadly and then the specific assets you might be exposed to. And as I said at the beginning, Even if you haven't personally chosen to allocate anything to office, you probably have some holdings through your super fund if you don't have an SMSF. Uh, And we've seen some pretty large valuation reductions talked about in the press. Can you talk to us about... What happened there? How many of them there have been? Has it only been a couple? I've only seen a couple reported. Are there some happening that are, you know, being swept under the carpet? Trying to keep that quiet, as you said. There's uh, there's a lot to be said for not necessarily publicizing write-downs and valuations, right? Do you think what's happening is reflecting market value at the moment?
0: Um, I mean, to some degree. Uh, so the, I guess there's a few different ways of thinking about market value. So one is, you know, physical Transactions that have actually occurred, like actual office buildings that have been bought and sold. So I guess you could say that's, but that's kind of by definition market value because that's where a buyer and a seller, willing buyer and a willing seller, have agreed to transact. Um, and you know, the, the I guess the issue there was transactions didn't really happen in the in the prime CBD space for. 12 to 18 months, even, even two years in in some locations. So in the absence of transactions, yeah, there was this big question about what are these buildings worth? And th- so the listed REIT market, um, REITs trade every day on the, on the stock market. So every day you're sort of seeing a, a signal from the market about what offices are worth and you know they're trading the big office REITs are trading at discounts to their net tangible assets of around 15 to 30% at the moment and it's been as low as a discount of 40% at times for you know someone someone like a Dexus which is one of the one of the biggest office REITs so that's that was kind of implying big devaluations in the physical office market would would occur more recently, we we have seen devaluations. We, we've seen the office REITs um, revaluing their portfolios downwards anywhere from low single digits to low double digit. And we have seen a little bit of transactional evidence. So, for example, Texas sold a building in the Sydney CBD on Market Street for, and it was sold for uh, I think it was around 17% below the book value that the asset was was held at. Now, to be fair, that I don't think that was by a long stretch one of Dexas' best assets. It was a roughly a 40-year-old building. It had about a sort of occupancy somewhere in the in the 80s percent, um, 80 to 90 percent, somewhere in that range. And it had a somewhat shorter lease, an average lease than I think Dexus has around about a four and a half year average lease on its portfolio, and this building was more like a three year average lease, and it was not not in the kind of core of the CBD. So, I guess my read of that is, okay, maybe the the physical valuations, um, the, you know, on the in the REIT accounts and in, you know the accounts of the super funds and so on may have um, a bit further to come down because you know we're seeing transactions at 17% discount, for example, um, but when you've got the big REITs trading at a 15 to 30% discount to their tangible assets, plus the big REITs also have um, intangible value. So they've got things like development businesses, they've got funds management businesses that's not captured in that, that NTA. Um, So essentially, you're you're getting, you know, arguably, you're able to buy the the big REITs at a a big discount to the the physical valuations, plus arguably get the development business or the funds management businesses that they've got for free um, alongside that. So, yeah, so we we think the, the physical market probably has further to fall. And our, our valuations are typically um you know implying declines in the in the NTA of the big REITs, but our our in terms of what we value the the REITs at, we we generally value those big REITs above their current share prices. Um, and, and do see a bit of value there because we, we think the uh, the listed market for the the big names with with a good balance sheets is a bit too pessimistic.
1: Yeah, that's so interesting because you wonder to what extent investors who are looking at the listed entity are going, oh, God, this is terrible, are not thinking about that gap, going, it's fine, you can have a write-down in NTA and still end up looking just fine because the discount was so significant. Do you think that investors clearly understand that that's how things can play out or are they going, no, 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 NTA is going to fall and match that discount pretty soon, and we're we're very comfortable with where things are priced.
0: Yeah, I think some would understand it and some wouldn't. Um, the the other thing I would say is that you know the situation in Australia is probably a bit different from um, I think you were highlighting, you know, very high vacancies that we've seen in the US, um, and we've also you know there's been a few headlines about property funds, at, you know, outright blowing up in the US where they're defaulting on debt. Um, you know, I, I sort of focus on the Australian market, but when I look at some of the, the headline kind of metrics of some of those deals, it looks like there was a few crazy things going on in, in some of those deals, um, things, things like, um, you know, 80% loan to value ratio. So that's, you know, if you borrow for say a, um, your residential mortgage, you know, that's akin to how much you're borrowing versus the size of the loan so they had a sort of 80% loan to value ratio versus a lot of the REITs here have more like a you know 25 to 35% loan to value ratio or or gearing level uh they also had much higher vacancies in a lot of cases you know 10 20 30 40 even 50% vacancies we've seen in in some assets in in the US whereas you know, probably the worst vacancy among the big REITs is GPT. They've, they've got about 12% vacancy. Uh, they've, they've got a bit of a skew towards Melbourne where things have been a bit bit slower to pick up and there has been a bit more new supply coming through in Melbourne. Uh, but even GPT, we expect that to gradually improve. Uh, and then at the other end, you've got sort of DEXAS or Mervac Their their vacancies more like in the sort of low single digits, so very different from um, some of those blow ups that we've seen in the US. Now uh, I'm I'm not saying that there won't be blow ups in in Australia, uh, but uh, I think that'll be perhaps more so in um, whoever owns some of the lower quality private private asset, uh, privately held property, and you know owns some of that B grade. Property where there may be high vacancies, um, or even you know perhaps somebody who owns better quality buildings but that took on too much debt. So you know there are risks out there um, that investors need to be be cognizant of, Um, it, you know requires a bit of uh, looking at looking at the balance sheets and so on, uh, looking at the the quality of the portfolios. But um, I don't think things are quite as bad here as as the US. Um, and you know, as I mentioned, we also do have that much stronger population growth here, which kind of bails out some of the uh, some of these property developers that you know might have bitten off a bit more than they chew. Might just sort of get out of things uh, alive just by the the fact that um, population growth is so strong.
1: Yeah, that seems to be a factor that's discussed a lot on the residential side, but you don't hear it discussed so much on the commercial side, and. Everyone's looking for a get-out-of-jail-free card. <laughs> so, yeah. Nice yeah. to think some, there might be one later. there. Yeah. it's a, So one final question then that is always on the mind of our investors, particularly those who've been around a long time, probably because they've made this mistake with one thing or another over time. You've pointed out the risks of the US market in particular and the fact that Australia has a tendency for your, our investors to imagine what happens there happens here. We saw it during the GFC, the market sold off 55% despite the fact we had no subprime mortgages. Uh, but uh, the biggest question I think also is this issue with rents, right? So a lot of investors when they buy REITs are really just thinking about yield and the valuation factor has only become a live issue in the last couple of years because of COVID. Mostly they're going, I'm not too worried about what you sell this for because it's a property you're going to hold for a decade or more. What I really want is a nice, strong yield that's going to continue. Do you see yields holding up or do you think, you know, you've talked about this sort of prime versus less prime, <laughs> less prime asset issue? Do you think there are going to be sectors of the market where yields are going to fall so investors are going, do you know what, property looks great on the office side at the moment, you know, the discounts are quite attractive, I'll jump in because the yields look really strong and then the yields come off and the assets come off and then you've got that horrible yield trap that's caught us all at one point or another. Do you think that's a risk or were you expecting yields to hold up okay?
0: Look, it's definitely a risk and particularly when you introduce debt into the equation because, um, you know, your, your revenues as, as a, as a landlord, your revenues, are kind of fixed, you know, or, or at least they're, they're sort of governed or they're set according to the lease contract that you sign. So, you know, your revenues, you don't have a lot of influence over that, but costs, if you've got debt, your costs are rising a lot because the cost of debt is, is going up, you know, some of the, some of the reits had, um, you know they'd locked in fixed rate debt, or they had hedges that sort of meant that uh, their cost of debt, you know, is still pretty low. But as those those fixed rate debt instruments or as those hedges expire, eventually they'll have to pay the, the going rate of debt uh, of interest costs. And so your costs are going to be rising when you know maybe revenue is is flat, uh, or you know maybe even down if if you're if you're seeing vacancies. Increasing for the big reits, we you know we think they're you know largely okay. You might see a period where um, for a couple of years dividends come down a bit as you know interest costs go up a bit, but you know our, we we don't expect interest costs to rise forever. Eventually, interest costs top out as well, and then your kind of um, revenue growth can drive some some earnings growth you know eventually we we do anticipate Revenue growth from uh, economic growth from inflation from population growth so there could be some headwinds for dividends over the next few years largely manageable for the big rates and they're they're already on pretty good yields of you know five six seven percent in in that sort of ballpark so if you if you sort of assume maybe a little bit of um dividend declines in the near term but you know growth in the long run that's that's actually not bad um because you know if you invest in a fixed rate bond you you don't get growth you get you you get the coupon that you get uh generally doesn't doesn't grow unless unless you're talking about inflation linked bonds which is another another different story but um but it with REITs you know that in the long run the the dividends can can grow but that's sort of the that's the big names that have the good assets and have a you know a balance sheet that doesn't have too much debt if you're talking about you know some vehicle out there that either has too much debt or it has assets where they're starting to see a lot of vacancy then yeah that that could come under some pretty intense pressure and distributions could be at risk there
1: that's an interesting one so focus on quality in this environment
0: yeah, quality and, and the other thing is um, total return as well. So if your distribution is under pressure, but you're buying the the stock at a big discount to its intrinsic value, you might get a you can potentially get a, a good overall total return because you're getting some capital appreciation if the dividend cut or the distribution cut is not as bad as what the market fears. So you know, it's not like the old days where you can just invest in a in a reit for on a, an almost guaranteed distribution and guaranteed to rise. Um, you know, there are there are risks out there, and you you sort of need to look at it on a total return basis and look at it on a name by name basis in terms of the balance sheet and the and the quality of the portfolio.
1: Alex, that's a beautiful segue into my last question, which is that you guys at Morningstar produce excellent research, and you cover all of these stocks and sectors, hence the kind of macro picture, the data that you look at, and then your views on these things. We publish a little bit on NAB Trade, but certainly not everything. Where do people go to find out more about you guys and what you're working on?
0: Sure. I mean, I I, I like Googling things, so you can always just Google whatever topic you are interested in, chuck in the name Morningstar, and you'll, you'll probably get a view of that topic through Morningstar's lens, so Morningstar tends to look at things through a long-term viewpoint, um, and we tend to look at things from the viewpoint of the end investor, particularly the the retail investor, but you know, if, basically from the investor viewpoint. So that's one way. Uh, but if you do want to look up, you know, specifically Morningstar research um, and see what Morningstar has to offer, then Morningstar.com.au is a good good place to start.
1: That's beautiful. Thank you, Alex Prenez from Morningstar. Thank you so much for joining us today.
0: Thanks, Gemma. Good to talk to you.
1: Thank you so much for listening. Uh, we love getting your feedback. We love hearing from you. We love your questions and the topics you want to hear about. This was certainly one of them. So please just email us at yourwealth@nab.com.au, and I look forward to talking to you again soon. I'm Gemma Dale. Thanks for listening.
0: Thanks for listening to Your Wealth with Gemma Dale. To stay up to date, please subscribe to this podcast series or email us at yourwealth at nab.com.au. Please note that any advice provided in this podcast has been prepared without taking into account your objectives, financial circumstances or needs. Before acting, you should consider the appropriateness of the
1: information. To find out more, please visit nab.com.au.